The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Can we agree that unbridled ambition does all kinds of damage? Untamed ambition, not put in check, driving a human forward, it can be very destructive to that person's life and actually the lives around them. That's a thought that it's not just wrestled with in our generation, but for generations, humanity, maybe even from the beginning, humanity has wrestled with this question. In fact, one of Shakespeare's tragedies is all about that one concept of the carnage that is brought about by unbridled, untamed, unrestrained ambition. It's one of his most uh, famous plays. It's the play Macbeth. Now, when I say that, you think, wow, the last time I thought of that, I was in 10th grade and I was in English lit and I didn't enjoy it then. I'm pretty sure I'm not about to enjoy it now. Okay, I know I'm triggering you. Okay, but just... Stay with me for a second. And a special apology to those who are actually in 10th grade right now. And you're like, I'm trying to escape this. And I come to church and here we are back with Macbeth. Okay. The story of Macbeth is um, just really quickly. There's this guy and his companion. They uh, are returning. Macbeth and his companion, they're returning from a, a battle. They, they win for Scotland. And as they're journeying home, they come across this small group of witches that are very weird, but they prophesy over Macbeth that you will become a baron and you will also then become king. And they're like, well, that's strange. And then they say something about his companion too, that you won't become king, but something maybe your, your descendants, your sons maybe will become king. And they're like, okay, that's odd. And they're kind of wrestling. What does this mean? Are these good witches? Are they bad witches? The witches disappear. They continue on. And then some ambassadors come from the king of Scotland and they say, hey, Macbeth, we've heard about your victory. The king wants to talk with you, celebrate that with you. And by the way, he just made you a baron over a particular land, and it's the exact land that the witches had just prophesied over. And he's like, well, that's really strange. I mean, the first part of the prophecy, I mean, it's been five minutes. The first part of the prophecy has already come true. And now all of a sudden he's wrestling. Could the rest of it become true? Could I become king of Scotland? But there is a king of Scotland and he's got, you know, all of his sons. So what does that mean for me? And he's processing it and he's processing it. And, and, uh, and, and it starts to grip him. This idea that he might become the king of Scotland grips him. And he goes on home to tell his wife. And she says, oh, that's got to be, you're going to become the king of Scotland. And she says, in fact, the king is coming over tonight. Let's just go ahead and kill him now. Shakespeare's plays, they're really rooted in reality. I think you probably know that. Okay, so. So they kill him. They frame him. They go ahead, they frame the, the killer, the, they frame these other guys, they kill them too, and then he becomes the king. But then he remembers his friend, who his sons were then going to become king, so then he gets suspicious of his friend. He kills his friend. They just start killing people all over the place. Then, as you can imagine, you know, it's a 
typical Shakespeare move, like the ghosts of the people they've killed now appear to them, and now they're tormenting them. And his, his wife starts to go crazy because she's so guilty. She then kills herself. And then he's trying to kill like his friend's kids and then they run away and then there's this other guy. They go, the witches appear again and they have these prophecies that makes him even more confused. And then eventually he dies and it's a tragedy, the end. Jeez, Shakespeare, like calm down, buddy, okay? But there's this moment when he's wrestling. It's right after he finds out that he's become a baron of this land. And he's like, wow, the first part of the prophecy has come true. And he says this line. He's like really wrestling with, maybe I am going to become king. And it's like at that point, the, the idea of something in his life that hasn't yet happened grips him. And he says, as he's wrestling with it, like maybe I will become king, he kind of crescendos in this, this little monologue with this phrase. It's one of the famous, most famous phrases from Macbeth. He says this, nothing is but what is not. In other words, what's coming over his life is there's nothing at all any longer in his life. Nothing but what has not yet happened. He's so gripped by the future. He's so uh, possessed by what he wants to accomplish, what he wants to wrap his fingers around in clutch. He's so gripped by what has not yet happened that there's nothing else in his life. Nothing is but what is not yet. It's a statement about ambition. It's a statement about being so fixated on a future that's not yet been realized that we lose all sense of reality in our present life. I mean, we, we know we, it doesn't take us much to get to the place where, un, where we believe unbridled ambition, ambition that is not in check, ambition that runs wild, does all kind of damage in our lives and in the lives of people around us. But we've also seen the other extreme, no ambition. We've seen someone that's maybe been so beaten down in life they've given up. Or someone whose life is just hunkering down, staying safe, staying comfortable. And what we see in that person, whether it's someone who knows them or it's, or it's that person, they know that there's something that's gone dormant. There's something that's, it's just there's more to them. There's more they could be. And maybe the person themselves are like, I know there's more in here, but I'm just, I, it's like that's gone asleep. It's like, it's like gone dull. It's like gone dead. I mean, we know like there's the unbridled ambition is dangerous, but like the no ambition, there's something scary about that because we have to admit that when someone's eyes are aflame, and they've got a fire through their veins for something. They never appear more alive. And when there's no ambition, it's like, man, there's more in there. How do you let it out? How do you recapture that? And so here's the only thing we know to do with the, in, in, our, in our world, in our generation. The only thing we know to do is say, well, probably the answer is somewhere in the middle. All we know, the only answer we know, the only thing we know to do, the only play in our playbook is say, well, balance. Have some ambition, but not too much. That's our only play. 
Don't be no ambition. Don't be too much ambition. Just be right in the middle. But what if there's another alternative where we're capturing all the fire that makes us alive with none of the carnage it brings around us? Where we, we actually have all that fire to believe the sky's the limit. But it's been redeemed, repurposed into something that actually orders all the other priorities in our lives. I want us to dig into a, a, actually two passages today. Where I want you to open first to First Chronicles chapter 17. Here's what we're going to do. I want to do this a little bit different. Uh, we're going to look at two different places in, in, um, in First Chronicles. They are two episodes of David's life. And I want to look at them side by side. We're going to take a little bit more time on the first one and then look briefly at the second one. But I want to look at these side by side because when you look at both of them, it's very instructive on the subject of ambition. First Chronicles chapter 17, let's look at verse 1. Now this is obviously in the Old Testament. This is about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. It's about 500 years after the time of Moses. Uh, David is the king. Let's pick it up in, uh, over Israel. He uh, lives in Jerusalem. Let's pick it up in First, First Chronicles 17 verse 1. Now when David lived in his house, <clears throat> David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. All right, pause with me there just for a second. What's happening? David is the king. He's just established. He waited a long time. I mean, he had been anointed as king as a child. This is deep into his adulthood. He had times where he could have just taken it in his own hands, in his own timing, but he waited and he waited and he waited. He actually handled his predecessor, Saul, who was a wicked king. He handled him with honor, with dignity, and he waited on the Lord's timing. He didn't try to undercut Saul. He didn't try to, um, to topple Saul. He waited for God's timing. Well, God's timing eventually came. At this point, David has been a mighty warrior. He has defeated the enemies of God's. God's used him to defeat the enemies of God's people, and now he is uh, the king. He's now in Jerusalem, and he's built a house. He's built a, a literal palace for himself. And he's now, what he says, he calls Nathan, which is the prophet, calls Nathan to himself, and he says, listen, um, my house, it's a nice house. Like, I have a nice palace. He says it's lined with cedar. That's like, that means it's like all updated, super luxurious, the best technology, like everything's the nicest appliances, the biggest TV. I mean, he's got all the things. It's really, really nice. He says, my house is really, really nice, but the, the house of the Lord is a tent. Now, a little bit of the backstory here. This tent is called the tabernacle. So like, it's not like, you know, a camping tent. But it is technically a tent. Where did this tent come from? This tent was specifically designed by God, commanded in detail how he wanted the tent. Commanded to Moses and Aaron. I mean, down to the materials used. 
Certain parts were skins. Certain parts were fabric. The color scheme was determined by God. The particular fruit embroidered on the curtains picked by God. The size picked by God. The layout by God. I mean, God designed this tent. Now, why did he design a tent? Because at the time, they were wandering around through the wilderness. And so God was, is, is this place of worship, this house of worship, was going around with them. They could pack up the tent and go to the next spot and then unpack the tent. They, the, his, his house, so to speak, was a, was a portable, movable tent, the tabernacle, and they were still worshiping there. Now, David says, it just feels weird. The, we're getting established. You know, there was Saul. Now there's me. We've got a capital. We're in Jerusalem. I've got this nice palace. We've got this capital. It just doesn't feel right that God's house is still in a tent. So he calls Nathan. Now, I don't have time to get in the whole backstory on Nathan, but here's what you need to know about Nathan. He's a prophet, so he seeks the Lord, and God will speak through him. He will speak on behalf of Nathan. And what we know from other stories, you got to know this about Nathan. He is not a yes man. There's another story. David has this whole saga with a woman named Bathsheba, and Nathan comes right to him and calls him out. And it's not pretty. Nathan says what needs to be said. David's saying, I, th- I want to build God a house. I don't like it. It doesn't feel right that my house is better than God's house. I want to build God a house. And here's what Nathan's reflex is. Do all that's in your heart to do because God is with you. I remember Nathan's not a yes man. I mean, I'm sure David was like excited to hear that. But I mean, Nathan would tell him. Why is that Nathan's reflex? Listen to this. Um, uh, listen to this proverb. It's instructive. It's Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The proverb says the, the heart of a king is like streams in God's hand. He'll, he'll direct it this way. He'll direct it this way. God, the, the heart of the king is directing back and forth. So Nathan hears it. He says, look, there doesn't, it seems like this is a beautiful thing. And I'm expecting that God is going to show what he wants by how he's directing your heart. So do all that's in your heart to do. Okay. You follow me so far? There's something in David's heart. He's kind of, he shares why it's in his heart. He, why it's in his heart is because he doesn't like it. Doesn't, he, his house is, he doesn't like that his house is nicer than God's house. It doesn't feel right. She brings it before a prophet. He tests it with someone who would speak truth into his life. Nathan speaks, speaks to him, say, hey, do all that's in your heart to do. God's with you. Okay. Now Nathan's going to leave and later that night get a word for the Lord and come back. Now, I had always, up until recently, misunderstood what Nathan comes back and tells him. Because in the end, it won't be David that will build the temple. It'll be David's son, Solomon. David will later say his hands had blood on them. In other words, I'm a great, I, my calling was to be a great warrior. My son's calling is to build this house. I had always thought that when Nathan came back 
to David, he says, hey, I take back what I said. When I said, do all that's in your heart to do, God corrected me later, and God's saying, whoa, slow down, David, time out. I don't think so. But that, look at what it says. That's actually not what it says here. Nathan's going to get a word and come back to David. Look what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 3. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but have gone from tent to to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word? with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build you a... What's the word? Uh, The Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Forever, in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. I didn't hear a rebuke in there. Like, that sounded pretty good. I'd always kind of thought that the way it had played out was David's like, I want to build you a house. And Nathan's like, you? No, not you, David. Like, what are you thinking? I mean, that... That sounds pretty positive. In fact, what he says is, he says, um, up until this point, have I put it in any of the previous judges and rulers in their hearts to build a temple? None of them had it in their hearts. Now, does God want a temple? Well, yeah, the temple is going to be built by Solomon. There will be a temple that will stand for generations where God will, will be worshiped and his presence is coming down. So why is God saying to David, I have not put it in any of the hearts of the judges to have a house? Is he saying, that's so silly. You think I want a temple? I don't need a temple. The universe couldn't contain me. Why do you think I need a temple? A temple, a tent is just fine. Of course, he's not saying that. He eventually has a temple. So what is he saying to David? He says, I have not put it in any of their hearts 
until now. I am putting it in your heart, David. Why? You want to build me a house. I put it in your heart to build me a house because here's what's in my heart to do for you. I will make you a house. And you, from your offspring, that's singular, by the way, out of your offspring will be a kingdom that will stand for all time. I am making you a house. And the reason that David's not going to build this house is a sign act to David that what this word over David is true. I am going to have your son build it as proof and evidence to you that your dynasty doesn't end with you, but that you have an offspring that's coming that will build a house for all time. So as proof and evidence, your son will build the house as evidence that your reign will last forever. See, this is not a correction and a rebuke. David says to Nathan, I, I don't like it that I have this nice house and God doesn't have, the, has this tent. And David's like, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, do all that's in your, in your heart to do. And Nathan comes back, not saying, whoa, time out. That's a terrible idea. He comes back and says, that is from God and it's even bigger than you imagine it is. See, what this passage right here, this is what's known as the Davidic covenant. This is where the promise to David is that his reign will never end, that his line will never end. This is not a correction. This is the covenant with the house of David. This is a powerful passage. Okay. This is a, towards the beginning of his reign. Now let's turn one page over. I want you to go to 1 Chronicles 21. Let's look at the second episode in David's life. <clears throat> then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants, why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. Episode two, David has another idea. He wants to number all of Israel. Is it like a census? Well, it's not just any census. I mean, you're not, it's not wicked to do a census in the Old Testament. I mean, there's whole, like the book of Numbers. I mean, it's filled with people being numbered. It's not just evil to number God's people. In fact, there were laws around specific ways they wanted to number God's people. There were taxes and offerings that were done during that. This is a specific kind of census, and you see it in the details of the text. He doesn't call his administrator to number God's people. He calls Joab. Joab is his general. 
He calls General Joab and the commanders of the army to number Israel. And if I kept reading in the next verse, they came back with a certain type of number. It was not just the number of humans, not the number of households. It was the number of warriors. This is a a census of how big is our military capacity. Well, are there enemies that are coming against David? No, there's peace. So why is he numbering his warriors? This is what the culture would do in David's day when they're about to go on conquest. Joab knows exactly what this is about. He says, please don't do this. You're going to bring guilt on all of Israel. Please don't do this. This is the promised land. God designed these borders. And he knows what's motivating David. He says, let God expand Israel a hundred times over. David gets it into his heart. He just wants a bigger kingdom. Tell me how big the army is. I want to know the capacity. He's got something else in his heart. His motives are not the same. When he takes it to one of his key advisors, they plead with him not to do it. In fact, it even says two verses later, Joab goes all over and sends his commanders all over the empire and gets, their, gets all the numbers. But it says the king's command is so abhorrent to Joab that he doesn't even number two of the tribes. He can't even bring himself to do it anymore. He gets 10 tribes in. He's like, I'm done. Watch what happens next. The consequences are terrible. Pick it up in verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. David's ambition his drive. He just wanted more and more and more of a kingdom. He wasn't contented. He wanted more and more and more. And that was costly and not just to David. Thousands would die in Israel as a result of this. Death would work its way down from the north and start coming down towards Jerusalem. It would be day one, day two. And on the third day, David would be pleading with God for mercy and he would look up and on the top of the the highest point over Jerusalem, he saw an angel with a sword drawn standing over Jerusalem about ready to bring the just judgment for for David's sin. One man's sin was bringing judgment on all the people. He had a sword over and he pleaded with God for mercy and at that moment, God, at that point, God had mercy on his people. And what ended up happening is that David was told then to buy that piece of land where God had mercy and wiped away the one man's sin, which was costing so much judgment on all of God's people. He bought that one place and it would end up being the property where he would build the temple. That place of mercy would be the place where the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat would sit. That place where God took away the the judgment they deserved would be a place where there'd be an altar built where they would bring sacrifices that would wash away their sins. And so what's interesting is there's two things that that David has in his heart. The first one is to build God a temple. That was something God said, yes, I put that in your heart. The second one was ambition to just expand his territory. But even that, with all of its consequences, God finds a way to redeem 
for the original calling he had called to David to the whole time. Okay, two, two stories side by side. What do, what do we learn for these? Unbridled ambition. Does it cause damage? Well, maybe there's another way to look at it. Maybe it's not just unbridled ambition. Maybe that's not the, the problem. Maybe it's not just strong ambition. Maybe it's not too much ambition. What if there's a third option altogether? What if it's not just selfish, vain ambition and no ambition? What if there's a third option altogether? See, here's what we learn from this text. On one hand, from the second story, what we learn is, man, if you have selfish ambition, if I, if I have a drive for something that God has not brought, but it's just for me and for my kingdom, if it's something for my kingdom, that does significant damage. I mean, listen to what, what the Bible says in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It's very clear. Listen to what it says. Do nothing... Do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It doesn't say, notice what the Bible says. It doesn't say, hey, look, we all have some selfish ambition. I mean, we all have our goals, the things that we want. The trick is, just dial it back a little bit. Just don't be a monster about it. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Word of God says. That's not what God is saying to humanity. According to God, in the Bible, do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing that's selfishly for me. Nothing that's coming from a place of vanity. It's like, well, I want to do this because it makes me look good. I want to do this because I want to prove to them who I am. I want to do this because I want this status. I want to do this because I want this thing. I want to do this because I'm, I'm trying to, I know this is what I'm, I'm capable of and I need to do it and prove it to myself if nobody else. Do nothing out of selfishness. Do nothing out of vanity. Do nothing out of conceit. Conceit is like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get what I deserve because I deserve it and no one's taking this away from me. It's just conceit. And the Bible says, do nothing at all. Dial it all the way back to zero. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Problem number one that we see in the second story is having like selfish drive and conceit. But the first story actually celebrates a different kind of drive. We also know that we're not, we're not supposed to have zero ambition and drive. Think about this. We know that someone, they're just, it's like they're the most alive when they've got a flame in their eye and fire in their veins, right? Why is it? It's because you and I were made in the image of God. You've got a God that invents, creates. You've got a God that's, that's industrious. And he said, I'm making you like me. Now go create Go build, go invent, go be industrious, go be innovative. That's he's made you like him. In fact, God is described, Jesus is described as someone whose eyes are on fire. So should it be a surprise to us when a human, when their eyes are aflame with something, that they seem more alive and truly human than any other time? 
See, he wants you to have drive. What's the answer when we put these two passages together? It's not have no ambition and it's not have selfish ambition. It's something altogether different. He wants you to have a deep, fiery, burning ambition for the kingdom of God. Have a, have a pulse that's beating not to build your kingdom, but to build the kingdom of God. And those, those Christians that have come before us who have had that kind of flame in their eye and fire in their veins have done things that no selfish ambition could have ever gotten them to do. They've given their lives. They've actually given their bodies to actual flames. Something that no selfish ambition or vain conceit could ever bring them to do. See, this is what he's calling us to do. He says to have a kingdom ambition. Well, you say, yeah, that's great. I love to have that. But how do I make sure what's in my heart is a kingdom ambition, not a selfish ambition? Look what David did. The first thing, three steps. The first thing he did, what was in his heart? What's in your heart to do? In fact, that's actually your, you're going to be your homework from, this, from week one of this series. What's in your heart to do? There is an ambition there. And maybe you're like, well, actually, no, you, I'm one of those people. I don't really have much ambition. Actually, no, there is still an ambition there. Even if your ambition is to have the safe, most comfortable life possible, that's your drive Humans wake up in the morning with something driving them. There's a drive inside. What's in your heart to do? In the end, maybe it's that drive. I'm going to achieve. I'm going to make myself something. I'm going to do something with my life. You have a drive. Maybe it's to comfort and safety. Maybe it's to, you're trying to prove something to yourself or someone else or make something or make money or make the pr promotion or, or get what it is. You've got something driving you. And in the end, there's something. Because if you know Jesus and you've made him your savior, you have the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. And as you dig through those layers, you'll find a tiny ember of something holy starting to burn. It may be under layers of selfish ambition, but there's some ember in there burning from the Holy Spirit that's in your heart. Because it doesn't take much to take someone that's like, I just want to be safe and comfortable. It doesn't take much for that Christian to say, and you know what? I'm the safest and most comfortable when I'm walking in step with God. So you know what? I just want to be with you, God. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Because that's where I'm the safest. And that person with inside, that their ambition, in the end, if you could just get down to the root, what's really there is you're like, I just want to be a big deal. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's titles. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's status. I'm just trying to be a big deal. It doesn't take much for that person who knows Jesus to go from there to just redeem that and realizing, you know what? What God has already spoken over me is so much more profound than anything I could possibly achieve on earth. 
because I'm, he calls me a son or daughter. You are a prince or princess. You're going to reign with him. You're a citizen of another kingdom. God himself, you're not making your plans for you. God himself, inventor of the universe, who only writes masterpieces, is writing a masterpiece over your life. He's designing your life by hand, handwriting one for you. And it doesn't take much for that person who's saying, I'm trying to be a big deal to realize because of Jesus, I'm a bigger deal than I could have ever realized. And he's got a plan. So I just want to be with you in the plan you're writing for my life. What's in your heart? Step one and what your, your homework is for this week, discern the layers. What is in your heart to do? And then here's the second one. What did David do? He discerned the motives in his heart. He said, if I'm honest, building God a temple, I'm fine with my house. My house is nice. It's got cedar. It's great. Uh, what I want is a house for God. Discern of those things that's in your heart to do. Is it for your kingdom or is it for God's kingdom? You say, how do I know? Uh, because, man, you and I know, wow, we can rationalize a lot. Listen, God, let's just talk about the lottery for a second, Lord. <laughs> you and I know I would do I, the things I do for you for the lottery. You can trust me winning the lottery. I mean, like, sure, I'll get a car. One Rolls Royce is not going to hurt anything. But then again, I can't drive a Rolls Royce and leave my wife in a minivan. So we both need Rolls Royces, okay? And one for each of the kids. All right, and then we're good. And then, of course, I mean, I'm not going to leave them outside in the elements. So I'm going to need a five-car garage, which means a new house, okay? Like, we can rationalize a whole lot, Uh, we can rationalize, oh, Matt, well, I know that I'm not with my wife and kids as much as I want, but I'm trying to make a life for them. They don't want a nicer vacation. They just want more of you. We can rationalize a whole lot. And so how do I know? Here's a litmus test right out of Philippians 2, what we just read. If I can't consider others more significant than myself, what is that? That is a competitive heart. If I have a competitive heart, it's about my kingdom, not someone else's. If I can't scroll through social media saying, actually, I deserve what they have. I can't believe they're getting it, not me. I'm envious, I'm jealous. If someone else gets the promotion, because God's kingdom is big enough to do whatever he wants to do through you. There's no scarcity. But if I have a heart of scarcity, then it's really about my kingdom, not theirs. If there is a competitive heart, that is a tell that I'm about my kingdom, not God's kingdom. The inverse is true. If I'm like David, I, my house is nice enough. It's paneled in cedar. I have a nice enough house. I'm not, I don't care about my house. I'm after the kingdom of God because there's things left undone in the kingdom of God. Contentment which is signaled by thankfulness of all that I have. Contentment on one hand is a signal that my heart is in the right place for the kingdom of God. Competitiveness is a signal that it's really about my kingdom. And here's the third thing. David saw discernment was in his heart. He took it to Nathan. Or he, discerned what, he discerned was in his heart. He tested his nose and then he took it to Nathan. You bring it into Christian community. Honest people who will tell you the truth. This is what's in my heart. 
Tell me how this sounds. Someone who can tell you, yeah, it sounds like selfish ambition. Do you have that in your life? That's part of what church is about. It's not coming on the weekend to just get a shot in the arm. What church is about is we grow together as a body and a family. If you're not, this is part of what we do as a church. And for some of you, it's time to take that step from just attending to be part of the family. If you go to Cooper City, come a little early on Sundays. Go to the family discipleship that happens on Sunday morning before the service. If you're here at the West Pines campus, consider coming on Wednesday night. There's things for your teenagers, for your kids, and you can join in with other families, other couples, and you can and, and other individuals and other singles, and you can join in with a group and build those relationships where you're speaking into each other's life lives because that's always how God's going to do it. He's He's going to speak through others into each other's lives. Do you have that Christian community around you? Here's our homework for this week. Our homework for this week is look in our heart. What is in our hearts to do? And to begin testing it in our heart. And can I just make a case for why really what you want is to align every pulse in your body for the kingdom of God and not your own kingdom. You say, that's vulnerable because I've got things I want to do. And it's, you maybe it's like, no, I want to achieve this. I want to get this. I want to have that. I've got things I want to do. Or it sounds scary. It sounds like I'm taking a step that I'm not sure I'm ready to take. I'm not sure I'm going to be safe. But do you remember what the promise of Scripture is? Your Savior said it. Seek first the kingdom of God. And what's next? All these things be added to you. Can I tell you why you want the kingdom of God first? Because your kingdom and my kingdoms will pass away. We'll leave it behind but don't you want to give your life to something that's going to stand for all eternity? Isn't that something that gets the fire stoked in your soul hotter than anything else? That you can give your life to building a kingdom, the stories of which will be told for billions and trillions of eras into eternity, that you'll still see the fruit. You'll, we'll forget about the promotions and the dollars and, and the bank accounts and the things we could get and the, the trophies and things we could accomplish and the titles we're given. Those things will be long forgotten, but souls won for the kingdom of God, cities transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Those things will be celebrated for all time. Can I tell you what he started to stir up in our hearts, City Rev? Is to not just imagine a church with a, where we can come and have a neat, beautiful worship service. No, he's kindled in our hearts, imagining a city that we love transformed. A city that once being known for the sensual, for, for partying, known for sin, known for greed, could be a city known by the presence of God, by hearts turned to God, by whole industries turned over, by justice. Imagine what could happen if we dream for 
something bigger than any one of us can accomplish? What if we went to work every day with flame in our eyes and fire in our veins, imagining I'm going to do something through the work of God right here where I work, and it's going, and God is saying back to you, oh, it's even bigger than you could imagine what I'm doing through you. Imagine what could be done in businesses, in schools, in fire stations, in police stations, what could be happened up and down South Florida if God's people could just simply say, it's just your kingdom. That's what we're going to seek first. Imagine what he could do. Let's pray. One more question for your consideration as you're taking a posture of prayer. If all your life has been towards is building your own kingdom, maybe that's come from a place of never having bent the knee to the true king. Don't be the king of your own life. Surrender to King Jesus. Make him your Lord. That's what it means to make Jesus your Lord is saying you're the king. He saved you. He died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose again on the third day. He's the offspring of David. He's the true son of David that's building a house that will stand forever. We're told that that house is made of living stones. That's you and me. He wants to make you live forever by his work he did. His ancestor did one sin by which judgment came on all people. But the true son of David, Jesus Christ, knew no sin and by one act took all the sin and judgment off of his people. Receive the son of David, Jesus Christ, the offspring whose kingdom will stand for all time as your Savior and Lord today. It's not about being religious. It's about surrendering to Jesus. If that's you, let me lead you in the silent prayer right there, whether you're at Cooper City, watching online, here at West Pines, just say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I make you my king. You run my life. I will serve your kingdom. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.